want to thank everybody for joining us today. I'm John Chambers, and welcome to another episode of Chambers Talks by LinkedIn Podcast. In these sessions, it's a chance for us to interview some of the top leaders in the business world and to share lessons learned, talk about market disruptions, technology disruptions, uh, mistakes that people have made, and how they build great corporations. It also is a chance to talk about the key topics at the time, whether it's the pandemic issues or crisis management, as well as how do we build organizations that attract the best and brightest from all over the world. Today, I'm honored to be with a very good friend for multiple decades. Bill, we got to know each other, obviously, when we were teenagers, but uh, I've watched your leadership with a great deal of admiration, uh, first at SAP as CEO, uh, and uh, it is different in Europe than it is in the U.S. in many ways, but I watched how you ran that company. I watched you everything from your M&A strategy to your differentiation, and now it's ServiceNow, and how you're taking a great company but also remaking it in terms of the direction on digital transformation and how do you really kick that into high gear. So I can't think of a better person or a better friend uh, to have today. And Bill, I want to personally thank you and your team for taking the time. John, it's an honor to be with you. You are a living legend and you're a role model to many guys, including myself. So thank you for having me. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun and a great conversation. I'm going to start off with a point that often we're not able to talk about. Almost all of us, whether we're small startups or bigger companies, have to be very effective globally. Uh, and yet it's rare that you have a CEO who's really been a CEO in Europe and a CEO in the U.S. and comes with your background. How are they alike and how are they different? And, and think about it. Please don't be humble. Be very direct with the audience about Here's how you have to think about them, perhaps similarly, and here's some of the differences. Well, some of the cultural differences from, for example, an American company and a European company include, for the for a start, is the board structure, because in a European company, you now have not only external directors, but you also have employee representatives that share the same boardroom, share the same voting methodology. And therefore, you have to be incredibly close to the ground on where the employees want to see the strategy of a company go in Europe. In America, obviously, it's external directors. They, too, want things to go well, but it is definitely a governance nuance. I guess the second thing I would say, John, is stylistically, you have to really adjust your style um, in some ways to the audience that you are serving. Uh, for example, in the United States, um, people tend to like it a little more high octane and a little more on the edge of a dream and the optimism of what you intend to achieve. Whereas in certain parts of Europe, it might be better to start off with some of the challenges and some of the real deep problems that you have and stylistically focus on that before the opportunities to win over the crowd. So um, you have to really adjust your style accordingly, both in the boardroom and with the employees at large. Completely agree. Uh, I'm going to move now to as a style as a leader, and you adjusted it well, whether it was in SAP or here at ServiceNow, but you've always set aggressive stretch goals. And then you outline to your team a vision of what that would mean to your employees, to your shareholders, but most important, what it means to your customers. 
Could you share why that's important and maybe use an example of the digital transformation you're taking ServiceNow through uh, as an example of how you do that? And uh, again, kind of teach us as, as what's worked and maybe what didn't work as you went through right. this. Sure, John. Well, you know, in my book, When is Dream, the first quote I put in the book was from Robert Kennedy who once said, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? So I try to go into every situation as a leader looking for the art of the possible and not be limited by things like what used to be or the year-on-year comparison. I'm trying to create something that never existed before and to be the best at that thing that never existed before. For example, when you build products, try to build a product that the world doesn't know it needs yet, but once it gets it, it won't know how it ever lived without it. This is the place where uniqueness happens and real scale opportunity happens. Now on digital transformation, I think we're at the perfect intersection right now, John, of digital transformation, cloud computing, and business model innovation. And what I mean by that, very simply, is digital transformation in a world where GDP is actually down is getting enormous investment and the spending for digital transformation is way up. And you say to yourself, well, how far up is it? Well, 7.4 trillion in the next three years will get poured into digital transformation. It's hard to fully leverage that without cloud computing because these cloud platforms, and there's about a handful of them, will be the standards in companies in every industry around the world. And why is this drive happening at such a great pace? It's because every C-level executive needs to transform the business and the business model that they're in. And COVID, as an example, has exacerbated that quite substantially because now companies that used to be in high touch businesses. Let's take Disney, you know, I had theme parks, right? And we had cinemas, but now we don't have either one of those things. And that was the core business. So you had to pivot the entire business model to Disney Plus. And that Disney Plus now has 88 million subscribers. And even though revenue and profits might be down, the company's doing fantastic because they built the digital bridge to the future. And this is happening in every company, John. Well, you know, what's fascinating is how you outline that vision. And to your point, it's often a vision that others haven't, haven't done before. I would argue that Cisco did a pretty good job in that early 90s with the concept of the internet. And it wasn't about techies communicating with data. It was changing the way you work, live, learn, and play, and then building an architecture to achieve that. Take me the steps when you talk to your company and to your shareholders. And by the way, congratulations on the stock. I think since you came over in October of uh, 2019, uh, it's already doubled and you had a great week last week. So you're getting both the business results and the technology results that people, when they listen to your advice, understand how good you are at doing this. But walk me through, how do you outline that vision and how do you bring your team with you? Often when you're describing something they hadn't thought of or they might have very biases in a silo about how to do it. The first thing is you just got to be yourself and and be really authentic in your own skin and trust yourself. 
I wouldn't have come to ServiceNow if I didn't believe that ServiceNow could be the defining enterprise software company of the 21st century. So in my soul, there's no room for small dreams. You have to dream big dreams. And then I also believe that this is a world that needs a purpose-led strategy, John. So we make the world of work work better for people. And I think so many people are in soul-crushing jobs, doing soul-crushing things, when technology could really liberate them and give them a better life. You know, one simple example, there is 265 billion customer calls and call centers that people handle each year, costing over $1.3 trillion, when 80% of those calls are completely repetitive, unnecessary, soul-crushing things that humans don't want to do, that machine learning and AI can do and give the customer a better experience. Just one example. So we have completely committed ourselves to engineering the once-in-a-generation platform that we call the Now Platform to not only transform IT, but also to give the employees an unmatched experience. I like to think about an employee's onboarding process as one such experience. Think about this, John. Yes. We have companies out there today that are hiring thousands and thousands of people they never even met. How do you onboard them? Get them their computer, get them their smartphone, get them all the training materials that are just for them and give them an experience in their company that starts them off on the right foot where they're like, I'm with a winner here. This is a Michelin three-star experience coming into this company. And don't you know, that extends right away into the customer relationship because now the empathy for taking great care of the customer is there. We can have a frictionless relationship with a customer using modern technology that improves net promoter score, customer satisfaction, and loyalty. And best of all, we have people with great ideas that can create the future. They can build their own low-code applications and get them rolled out in days, not years. So the whole environment, John, is about speed, execution, and people doing what people love to do. You know, it's fascinating. We we speak with a little bit different accent. And I apologize, my, my Southern roots on that. But uh, you talked about speed of innovation. One of the things that was a real surprise to me over the last year was I thought when the economic crisis was combined with the pandemic that the speed of innovation would slow and potentially slow dramatically when people could no longer collaborate in their workplace. And yet we developed a vaccine in less than a year, which normally takes five to seven years, uh, at tremendous execution. And I see innovation occurring at a faster and faster pace, both in industry leaders such as ServiceNow, but also in the startup world. Uh, yet companies' ability, large enterprise, governments, et cetera, to know how to use this innovation to affect outcomes might be the critical path here. How do you think about that? And do you agree with the observation that it's actually accelerating, not slowing, probably gonna be here for the future. And how do you go to your customers and say, here's what I can do for you that you're struggling with? How do, how do you get your head around that? Well, first I wanna comment, I think the West Virginian accent is great. 
because I'm giving the audience a little New York today. So we carry our past with us and it's what makes us a little interesting, you know? So thank you, John, for that. Hey, look, John, the big thing is you got to start with the end customer in mind. And that's the whole unlock. So for example, we have a great relationship with Veteran Affairs and they fundamentally needed to reinvent or digitally transform their business. Yes. But the idea is not to start off with your platform and the business conversation because what they're actually doing is hiring your technology to do a job. What job are they hiring our technology to do? Well, they want to take care of the brave warriors that take care of the citizens of the world and keep them safe. How can we give them a great experience? How can we make sure that all of their services are enabled on the mobile so they don't have to wait on lines, so they can get to the right medical professional to take care of the right issue at the right time and give them the latest and greatest? Or maybe it's even a housing loan where instead of going to several different departments and filling out a whole bunch of paper, they can actually do everything with two clicks and done. So we're transforming the people and how their lives are improved using the technology. That's the great unlock here. When you think about teachers and students in schools working virtually, how we keep them safe from COVID and how they can still have a good learning environment, but at the same time, literally, literally protect lives. You know, I remember when COVID first struck, I was in a strategy session with our leadership team at ServiceNow in March. And we were going to do some blue sky thinking. And I said, look, there's not going to be a blue sky. It was a Monday morning. If we don't do something about the COVID dilemma, we have to be a company that matters. And if we don't help deal with COVID, there is not a big future for service now. We have to deal with this. So we came out with an emergency response application within one week. We came out with a return to work safely suite of applications where people could declare their mental and their physical readiness to come back to the office, where testing protocols and procedures would be in place, where social distancing and PPE inventory management could be taken care of by the business and all their facilities. So whether the employee was home, whether they were on the road or whether they were in the office, we could protect their lives. And that was really the big idea. So if you build with the end in mind and you take a simple approach to this, which is simply nobody wants to buy your software today. They want to hire your software to do a job. What is the job they want done? What is the outcome they want to achieve? How will they measure success on the pre-sale, sale and post-sale phase of a valuable relationship? That's an enduring relationship that will transcend time. That's the conversation. So if we can flip that to the customer's customer and really deeply care with empathy and passion for achieving that mission, we could do anything with a business. You know, Bill, we, we think alike. And each time you, you talk on a topic, my mind goes about where to go next. Uh, I'm going to uh, cover two topics and you can either combine them or only take one. Uh, I had a chance to watch how you ran your business in Europe. 
And you learned early on the importance of big business working, especially technology business, effectively with government and candidly avoided the problems that, that many of the large tech companies find themselves in the U.S. And I watched you with President Macron, who we both have a great deal of admiration for uh, and a true partnership, how you interfaced effectively to government. So the first question to think about is, number one, why do you do that? And why would you recommend people who are listening to this, whether they're big companies or small companies, get involved? And secondly, how does that feed into perhaps a new view of capitalism that is both let's get great return for the shareholders, and you've clearly done that, but also let's get great return for society and our employees and, and change the world for the better. How well, did you approach this and, and how, what worked for you and what did not? First of all, John, and you need to know this, you were the best in the business at partnering with governments around the world. And you were clearly the gold standard for that among CEOs like myself that were looking for that other executive out there, that role model that had accomplished that great unlock. And as you know, Very kind. It starts, it's absolutely a fact. And that's the truth. And I've told you that offline, I'll tell you that online too. Um, and everything starts with the head of state because policies are being determined. Constituents need to be serviced. Problems must be addressed. And in many ways, the business executives like the CEOs have to be a part of the movement that's going on in the country to serve the greater good of the people. And that is absolutely a foundational element in transforming the way business and government work together. So we really pride ourselves on that. And when I had the good fortune of being with SAP and having the chance to meet with President Macron and before him, uh, President Hollande, or it could have been Chancellor Merkel in Germany, I really care deeply about the issues that they were confronted with and how we could help them lock and load on their top three priorities. Don't go for 33. Go for the top three, the ones that matter the most, and think about what is it your business can uniquely do to help them achieve their goals. And don't go in thinking about a sale. Go in there thinking about the greater good of the citizens that they are hired to serve, that they have been chosen to serve. And if you can lock in on that purpose and mean it, because they know the difference between the ones that are there with the idea of just getting what they want. They know that. They're looking for the ones that came in asking for nothing and giving everything. And I've always had the belief, my mom gave me this early on in life, that you can get anything in this world you want if you help enough other people get what they want. And the thing that you could do at the big table once you're that person, once you're that leader of consequence, then you can team up also with your CEO colleagues because no one person can solve all the problems. But if you can start to build coalitions, if you become a platform, if you become a network effect kind of company and kind of leader, then you're really gaining momentum because now there might be two or three or four very significant people around the table helping to solve the problem. The real issue is, are you solving the problem or capitalizing potentially on the opportunity? And I have prided myself 
on doing that at the public sector and also the private sector. The approach is actually relatively similar. It really comes down to doing the right thing. Yes, it is so basic. Just do the right thing. And when you do your corporate culture, your values right, it almost dictates what every decision will be. Let me transition to leadership and lessons learned. Uh, We always like to talk about what we're most proud of, our biggest successes, but I've found it's important to understand that, but it's also maybe even more important to understand our biggest challenges or mistakes. Sometimes it's something like with me with dyslexia. Uh, Sometimes it's mistakes we make on a business call for me missing 2001. I just did not see it coming after 40 quarters of 70% plus growth. Uh, I didn't think it was mathematically possible to be below 50, much less to be down 35 uh, from 70% growth in 40 days. Uh, Share with me some of your successes and of equal importance or maybe even more either mistakes made or challenges that were in front of you and how you overcame them. And obviously we're focusing on our audience here to give them both a vision of what's possible, but remind them it's how you handle the setbacks that probably determine who you are. Absolutely. I mean, you know, for one thing, just dealing with setbacks, I mean, we all have them and they're all, they're all, you know, a part of us. So every mistake that you've made or every failure or perhaps even every personal setback. You know, I had a tough injury in 2015. I was determined not to be defined by a tough injury. And I made my business all about getting up, getting out and getting on with it. Because, you know, people won't uh, remember so much how you got knocked down, but they'll never forget you for how you get back up and keep coming. So I think, you know, you have to be highly convicted to the mission of who you are as a person. Um, You know, when you're young, I think you wanna be somebody in this world. And then as you attain some success, you wanna do something and contribute something to this world. And you have to decide on your own terms what that is. You know, John, you and I both know that it's only about 10% of the world has goals in the first place. You know, 90% don't. And there's been lots of research done on this that the 1% of the 10% that actually have goals drive about 90% of the value creation in the world, no matter their uh, profession or no matter the endeavor that they're in. So I think that this personal passion for you being the best version of you and not getting put back by the obstacles, but instead strengthened by them is super important. Um, Do you want me to go into the business side of it a little bit? Yeah, I do. But before we do, Bill, if I may, because for me, talking about dyslexia was really hard. Right. I thought it was a weakness and people wanted to see a CEO who was strong. Uh, And boy, was I wrong, that openness. I know that you almost never talk about your injury and you never talk about what it was like, but people remember the detail behind the setbacks. Is it too personal to talk about? If so, we can no. ask. No, I'm happy to, John. You know, I'm happy to. Um, well, I got, you know, very badly injured in 2015, um, basically carrying a large, thick glass of water, slipping down a flight of stairs and actually ending up with the glass 
between my face and a cement floor. And that actually doesn't go too well. So it actually um, pierced through my eye, but also severely cut me in a lot of different places. And I was unconscious and I came to, you know, in really bad shape, um, you know, having lost a lot of blood and, you know, really realizing that, you know, this, this was a close one. And, you know, you have to like, think about that and, and really reflect on who you are, because there was definitely a part of me that was saying, look, you've done enough, you know, yes. you could lay down and that's it. Um, or if you decide to try to get up, you know, you know that things are going to get tough. You know that you know that something very, very significant has happened here. But I said to myself at that moment, you know, my mind wants to protect me from the pain, but my will wants to bring me back. You know, I've got a wife and kids that need me. I've got at that time nearly 100,000 employees around the world. I've got a lot of great friends. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to find a way. And, you know, that night I, I found a way to get outside, get first responders to come and, you know, got helicoptered into a, a trauma one medical uh, unit um, and basically spent, I guess, uh, over 10 hours in surgery. And, you know, subsequently to that, probably a dozen other surgeries. Um, but, you know, I look back on it and it's not that it like really um, kind of built character in me because the character I had in me, I had, because if I didn't, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. But what it did is it revealed the character that gets built in a person over lots of different years, lots of different experiences, some good, some bad. But in the end, you got to be a fighter and you got to have the will and you got to will what you want. If what you want is to get your life exactly what you want it to be, you just got to look at every setback as an opportunity to get better. And everyone that's a really bad setback, you got to just think to yourself, as bad as this is, if I look around the world, there's so many people that have it worse than me, so many. And, you know, I might have lost an eye, but losing a loved one or something substantially worse physically is a lot worse than what I went through. And you just got to find out, you know, inside you what you're all about. You know, John, the one thing that I learned more than anything from it is um, from some of the greatest moments of the setback, I realized that somehow I got closer to people. Somehow, yes. maybe because I was less than perfect and I could bleed too and I could go through something like this. People felt comfortable talking to me. They would tell me their stories, whether it was them personally or a family member. And it could range from cancer to something like my injury. But the main thing was humanity, you know, really kind of took over. And I feel that in some ways I became more of a person around empathy for other people and really truly connecting with people at a deep emotional level that perhaps wouldn't have been possible without the injury. And I carry that with me with a lot of pride now because I truly believe that in many ways, you know, some somebody might say they're going through something and they could look at somebody like me who never gave up, who got back up and actually, I think, improved as a result of the injury, uh, did not deteriorate or fold up and go in a corner and run away.
you know, it's it's a tremendous success story. And what people listening to this need to understand, when you go through these trauma issues or business disaster issues, uh, it is very natural to say, can I lead out of this? Right. Is it really worth the effort? The hollowness in your stomach, the fear almost. Of course. Uh, I know how hard it's going to be. And that's just part of overcoming the challenge. Switching directions. Uh, kind of in summary, uh, two questions. First, your best advice that you've ever gotten and your worst advice. And then I want to hold the last question for you in a second. Um, I think the best advice I ever got was, um, you know, from my mom when she said the best part of you is you. And when you're a young person, you don't really understand what that really means. You just think, oh, mom loves me and um, I got the best mom. But as you um, as you grow up in this world, you realize that you are the only one that can be you. And actually, you won't be any good being somebody else. So just bring your authentic self to the table. Trust yourself and seriously, be you. Because if you isn't good enough for the people in a certain room or in a certain clique or in a certain company, that's okay. There's some other room. There's some other group. There's some other opportunity waiting for you. But don't change you to try to conform to everybody else's idea of who you should be. Um, probably the, um, the worst advice I ever got, I would have to say that um, there were advisors, especially when I was um, you know, starting out in my career, that kind of made business uh, a mercenary endeavor that you, know, you should uh, capitalize on the earning opportunity to jump from one job to another because the other job pays more. And while there's nothing wrong with leaving one job for another that pays more, I think the most important part of that learning is that money on the priority list of things to change jobs for comes in relatively low on the priority scale. I would say what comes in really high is your personal values, your ethics, your moral standards, where you feel comfortable and who you are matching up with the culture and who they are. Neither one needs to be perfect, but they have to have a real joint interest in things. They have to tie. Otherwise you change job and you'll feel like I'm on the wrong planet. I want to be on the right planet because that's where you can do your best work, where you feel comfortable, not because you feel comfortable because you're complacent. You feel comfortable because they can unleash you. They can let you run. They, they wanted who you are and what you do, and they wanted to let that free. I believe that is a very important uh, lesson. And early on, especially in careers, People will be requested to jump jobs. And someone once told me, hey, maximize your earnings. You don't owe anything to anybody but you and your family. You know, take this, you know, take this candy. It tastes real good. And um, put that candy away and really think about you, your dreams, your goals, who you really are and how that job matches up and gives you the freedom to be great. 
We've talked about a lot of topics, but reminding everyone that this is a podcast on LinkedIn. Many people who are connected to LinkedIn are, are thinking about careers and advancement and changing jobs, et cetera. If you only take one message away from today's session that Bill shared with you, take the one that when you change companies, you want to really understand the culture you're getting into. And is it a cultural mess for you? Everybody tends to think about the strategy, the vision, the economic return. Who do I report to? Is it exciting? You'll be disappointed if it's a cultural mismatch more than anything else. Last question, Bill. Uh, And normally I'd ask a question of you about dreaming and setting expectations higher or key points that we hadn't covered. But I think the future of work with digitization transformation coming at us is so important to this audience. Could you expand a little bit further how you think about that and how you position ServiceNow to really help your customers do it? Because I think this is one of the toughest topics we face with the speed of digitization and innovation, which we talked about, but coming back out of the pandemic at the same time. Right. Yeah, John. I mean, it ties back into culture too, right? Because if you think about the culture of a company and the priority of unleashing the human spirit, the will, and the talent of people. We shouldn't need to feel that they have to be pushed in a bullpen and watched over in an office unless that's the best use of their time and your time. So I believe that choice is going to be front and center as people think about where they wanna spend the next leg of their journey in their career. I think of an office and these these tall concrete buildings as another tool for business, not dissimilar to an iPhone or an iPad or a desktop. It is a tool. And if that tool is serving um, camaraderie, if it's bringing people together to bring out their best creativity, and their brainstorming techniques and their dreaming sessions. That's absolutely a great place to get the meeting together. Um, But I've also seen that humans are quite creative and they can adopt very well. And I've done some of my most efficient meetings on Zoom. So look, I think choice and really improving the human condition and human productivity is where it's at. I think a lot of people that built tall skyscrapers right now are recognizing that they got a lot of empty floors and they're going to still have a lot of empty floors even after the population around the world is vaccinated. And I believe that the future of work will be a hybrid model, that people will leverage that tool called the office building. When it's the appropriate place to work, they'll use technologies like this one when this is the appropriate place to work. And they could be taking a walk or a jog to come up with their next great idea as a great place to work. We're in a world now where it's power to the people, it's will to succeed, and succeed needs choice. And choice is what leaders have to give people. I think one of the things we should think about too is, you know, think about your your children or your friends and you say to yourself, what kind of company would I want them to work for? What kind of culture would that company have? What kind of choice would that company offer in terms of the conditions where they could do their best work? How flexible might that company be 
to absolutely unleash the best talents of my friend or my child. It's not a bad way to think about it. And if you think about it that way, I doubt you would say the old way is the best way. Just like John, you know, if we look back at you and I, you know, it could have been three, four years ago, if somebody wanted to meet us in Beijing for a one hour meeting, and we knew that was a really important meeting, you and I both know, we would be at SFO heading to Beijing on a moment's notice. Now, I think most executives would say, my goodness, why would I wait two days to have the meeting with John? If it's such an important meeting, maybe a Zoom is an appropriate way to get the conversation going, or WebEx or Teams, of course. Well, Bill, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, everybody understands, I think, having listened to this session, uh, why I admire you so much and honored to be your friend. Uh, I think we learn from each other constantly uh, as we move forward. I want to thank the people listening. Uh, to taking the time for this of uh, Chambers Talks and the podcast that I'm going to continue to do and invite them to join us in the next session. But Bill, once again, thank you. I, I learn from you every time we talk. Uh, you're an amazing leader and you're just a good guy. Thank, thank you for being who you are. John, you know, your friendship means the world to me. As I said earlier, role model, personified, friend for life. It was an honor to be with you and thank you for having me, John. My pleasure, bro. Thank you, my friend. God bless.